You're listening to KBOO Portland 90.7 FM. The time is 11 a.m. It's time for the bike show. to the KBO Radio Bike Show. I hope this finds you well. Uh, my name is Alon Rob, and I'm joined today by co-host Nedra Deadweiler, who is in Atlanta. Uh, good day, Nedra. How are you? I'm doing great, Alon. Nice to hear you. Um, in the past month, you did some training at the Highlander Institute. It's an institution that uh, brings to mind a long history of social justice leadership and activism. Uh, what were you doing there? And were you in training? Or Yeah, it, it was a summer institute session for memory workers. So like folks who do oral histories and um, I mean, tours is a part of the public history, anything that's engaging the public imagination around history and place, um, artists, you know, a number of artists, social scientists, we did a workshop on mapping. So we were looking at how to bring um, these type of practices into um, social justice movements, be it for labor, immigrant rights, um, um, abolitionism, you know, they just, <laughs> environmentalism, there's so many ways to bring in um, memory work um, to really address, like, narratives and um, also remember and archiving is another practice also just to remember what people have done so be able to lift up those stories and to remind ourselves of the long work and the diligent work and um, and who our elders and like you know inspirations are um, within movement wow it sounds like uh, really inspiring work um, oh my gosh it was wonderful <laughs> Uh, we'll have to talk to you more about it in the future. So I'll say goodbye for now, and um, okay. we'll connect with you again Later. in about half an hour. And um, um, in uh, uh, today's guests are involved in forms of change and innovation. Uh, we've had a little technical problems here with our first guest, so I hope it's worked out. But if not, please bear with us today. Uh, the first half of the show, our guest is physicist Monica Dunford, a leading scientist who was involved with the Hadron Collider in Switzerland and the Higgs boson particle, known by some as the God particle, though that name uh, has come under some criticism. And Dr. Dunford is an ardent cyclist and uh, sportswoman. And in the second half of the show, our guest will be Elizabeth Reagan, who's a White House fellow. Ms. Reagan is a senior project manager who managed the program Expanding Vaccine Accessibility in Massachusetts. She's also an avid cyclist and strong advocate for health equality and for differently abled cycling. Uh, so we're glad to have these guests, hopefully, and also, of course, glad that you, our listeners, are here with us today. And I also want to send special wishes to two friends. want to wish them health and strength. Uh, one, Anna in Barcelona, and Gonenk in Istanbul. All the best to you. Be well, please. Um, before we get to the guests, uh, several friends um, and family members have mentioned that uh, they had surprising fires in the batteries of their e-bikes. bikes. And we will devote a future show to e-bikes, the wonderful things about them, maybe the dangers. But in the meantime, if you have an e-bike, 
make sure you store it in a cool place. And on a more cheerful note, um, reminder that the wonderful Pedal Palooza, three months of bicycle events, celebrations, community building, and fun, is going on in Portland. For more uh, information, you could look at pedalpalooza.org and also shift2bikes.org, and that's shift, the number two, bikes.org. Um, over the years of Pedalpalooza, we've interviewed several of the individuals that helped make it such a successful and wonderful event. And those interviews, like all our shows, are available on bikeshow.portlandtransport.com. Our engineer today is Ty Walker. The show will be made available for future listening by Josh Hetrick and Chris Smith. As always, a big thank you for helping make the show possible. Okay, um, Dr. Dunford, are you with us? Um, let's see. Uh, uh, maybe, Ty, can you put on some music for a minute? And uh, we'll try. Sorry for the technical difficulties today. So, Ty, if you could put on some music. Thank you. Takes two wheels and no gasoline To keep yourself healthy and to keep the air clean You can ride in the sunshine, you can ride in the rain It takes two pedals, two wheels and a chain Everybody, ride your bicycle Let's get together and leave our cars home Everybody Get on your bicycle, let's get together to pedal and roam. You can take a ride up in Forest Park, you can ride with the light if you ride in the dark. You can ride from the mountain down to the beach, you can ride on the trail, you can ride in the street, you can ride
This is a coordinated monthly test of the emergency alert system through broadcast stations in the greater Portland, Vancouver area, including Clackamas, Columbia, Multnomah, and Washington counties in Oregon, and Clark County in Washington. With the cooperation of public safety broadcasters and cable operators, this system informs you of events that pose an immediate threat to your life, health, or property. If this had been an actual emergency, official information would have followed the alert tone. This test was originated by Clackamas County in Oregon. This concludes this test message. Hear about um, your cycling. Um, read, uh, I first came, uh, became aware of uh, Dr. Monica Dunford watching a documentary about the Higgs boson particle and was struck by her uh, zooming to work. So again, my apologies to you, Dr. Dunford, and to our listeners. In about uh, 10 minutes, we'll have, um, hopefully, the gods and goddesses of cycling Hopefully it will work. Uh, We'll speak with Elizabeth Reagan, who's a White House fellow and has been involved with programs to expand vaccine accessibility. Um, In the meantime, in the remaining uh, few minutes, until Nedra will join us and Elizabeth Reagan, um, I'd like to mention again uh, the wonderful Program the wonderful schedule of Pedal Palooza. Uh, the folks organ. I hope our listeners have had a chance over the years uh, to go and uh, attend some of these wonderful, wonderful rides. They're arranged according to themes, uh, subjects, interests, and there've been uh, there's been quite a variety of rides for every age group, every interest, and more. So hopefully some of our listeners, all of you, could join. In the meantime, I'd also like to mention um, uh, the wonderful Bike Portland site. Uh, Jonathan Ma has done a fantastic job over the years. Uh, The writing is uh, the highest quality. The articles are interested. The comments are informed. So uh, a warm recommendation to Bike Portland. And with Jonathan's permission, I'd like, uh, until our next guest, or our first guest for today comes up, uh, to share with you a couple of news items from the wide world of bicycle. And um, this is, again, thanks to Bike Portland. Um, So... um, one of the articles uh, they have, one of the news items, is about uh, some of the changes uh, uh, in in suburbia, actually, of all places. Um, and, uh, and this is an article from Slate magazine, Americans spend too much time in cars, the solution is simple. What do Americans have to fear from new housing being built in their neighborhoods? Last month, a study from Sacramento reached a decisive conclusion. 63% of respondents said a primary concern was the impact on traffic and parking. Neither neighborhood character, school overcrowding, crime, nor environmental impact topped even 25%. The survey illustrates something you could see at any neighborhood meeting or on the local news. America's automobile-dependent transportation system is making it impossible for us to fix a shortage of homes that now numbers in the millions. One reason that a new home is harder to afford than it has been in decades. The best place to build those homes is where people drive the least and not just because neighbors want less traffic. Less driving also means a low cost of living, fewer car crashes, and a smaller impact on the environment. A new report from the Brookings Institution sheds some light on where America's missing housing should be built to reduce future residents' driving time 
And it's not as simple as just putting all that housing downtown. Instead, the report shows even the suburbs exhibit huge variation in how much time residents spend behind the wheel each year. And the study, which were conducted in various cities, including Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, does reveal again that um, uh, not all sprawl is created equal, and there are many places well within what's considered suburbia that not only save residents an enormous amount of time and money by enabling shorter car trips, and a lot of that, of course, is because of uh, bicycle availability or lanes. Um, Jonathan Ma in his wonderful bike Portland, these are the news items, also has a story um, about advice for advocates. And this is from a publication called Street Plugs USA. And it's about how strategic escalation could help advocates win the sustainable transportation goals. Uh, and you might not need to host a massive die-in on a highway ramp or sue the Department of Transportation to win a better transportation future for your community. And even if you do, it's important to lay the groundwork first. Uh, and the article written by Carter Levine points out that whether we're talking about campaigns for transit funding, bike lanes, or anti-traffic violence infrastructure, Issues-based campaigns are a little like fungi. They have a huge amount of activity going on beneath the surface, but most people only see the mushroom that, quote, randomly pops up above ground. People see the big thing, the highway blockade, the street theater, the protests, the dying, the banner drop, but they often don't see the increasingly escalating actions and events that set the stage for the big thing. While the big thing is the one is one of the most visible parts of the campaign, it's not the whole campaign. It's just another tool in the organizer toolbox. It serves a specific purpose, it meets a specific need, has various costs with it, and is most effective when deployed at a specific place and time and in a specific way. The big thing is the story within the overall campaign, and the story it tells needs to tie into the rest of the overreaching campaign narrative to be effective. Um, instead of going straight to, quote, the big things, sustainable transportation advocates should begin by assessing your current situation, solidifying your ultimate goal, and identifying the strategically escalating steps of activity that get you from here to there. Who knows, you might be able to win what you want without the hassle of doing the big thing at all. If your goal is to open a door, try the doorknob before kicking it down. And uh, the article, which is again is uh, included in the wonderful bikeportland.org, uh, gives further advice and ideas about actions. Um, as far as pedal palooza, uh, as I said, over the years we've been fortunate to interview some of uh, the organizers and. Uh, it's a project, an idea, a vision, uh, whose mission is described on its website as support joyful advocacy of bikes and community. Um, and the vision of it is we see people riding bikes as an act of positive change. Um, it's made possible by many people, but the main organizer this year is Megan Sinon. And uh, uh, again, I urge you, if you're in Portland or, or coming to Portland, to definitely become involved in one of uh, the Pedal Palooza rides. Uh, today, for example, um, some of the rides are, um, excuse me, Some of the rides takes place uh, downtown. Some of them are in northeast Portland, uh, literally all over the city. And um, uh, looking at the rides today, uh, some of them started already early in the morning. Uh, there's a ride at 12.45. Uh, 
at uh, 3 o'clock, there's Bike Happy Hour. That's been going on for a while. And uh, between 3 and 5, uh, cyclists have been meeting at George's Beer Company, the George's, excuse me, Beer Company, 2705 Southeast Agony. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, place to and time to meet fellow cyclists. Um, there's also a ride at 6 o'clock called uh, Bike Portland Happy Hour Splashdown Ride. 6.30, a ride known as Loop, uh, organized by Mark Rabile, known as Loop Daddy. Uh, 7.30, a ride called Portland Unity Ride. Um, 7.45, West Side Wednesday Ride. Uh, so quite quite a lot of rides. Okay, um, we're almost at the half hour, and again, my apologies to Dr. Dunford in Germany. Uh, with all our attempts uh, through Zoom and the phone, we were not able to reach her. So um, hopefully uh, we will speak to her in the future. Um, in the second half of the show, uh, Nedra Deadweiler, co-host, will speak with... Uh, Elizabeth Reagan, who's a senior project manager in the health field. She managed the program Expanding Vaccine Accessibility in Boston and Beyond. Uh, she's currently a White House Fellow um, and also an avid cyclist and strong advocate for health. Um, Nedra and Elizabeth, are you on? Take it. Yes, from, I'm, yes. I'm here. Okay, thank you. Okay. Thank you. Take it from here. Okay, hi, Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. <laughs> hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, um, Alan gave an introduction um, to you, and I'd like to just kind of start a little bit on a personal level um, and get into your uh, story, you know, where you're currently doing um, and some of your, your advocacy. Um, so, with that, you grew up in Beaver Creek, Oregon, a small community out about 20 miles south of Portland. What was what was it like growing up um, in Beaver Creek, and were you always um, a cyclist? <laughs> well, I mean, Beaver Creek is it is a small town, um, sort of on the cusp of where things get pretty rural outside of Portland. If I were to characterize my childhood, it's pretty much playing outside. Uh, all the time as much as I could, uh, whether that was with horses or, you know, hiking. I was a big runner through high school. Um, and on that note, I, I wouldn't say that I was always a cyclist. Towards the end of high school, I started to get interested in bikes. Uh, my first bike was sort of a Frankenstein of a cyclocross bike with a mix of used and new parts. Um, but I would say by my probably freshman year of, of college, uh, I was solidly subscribing to the N plus one rule and had caught the, caught the bug, if you will. Okay, that sounds great. Uh, riding in a rural area is uh, always stimulating. I think that's been some of my favorite places to ride. Um, can you talk a little bit more about your cycling journey over time? Um, maybe before what you were doing before you had your major accident. Yeah, well, maybe I'll take a, a moment to just contextualize it for listeners. So uh, I uh, sustained a, a traumatic spinal cord injury just under four years ago during a rock climbing accident up in New Hampshire. So while, you know, I used to be an able-bodied cyclist, um, I've had to, in recent years, adapt and sort of rediscover the sport um, from a, a slightly different perspective. So, you know, when I was younger and into um, well into my 20s, I uh, was an avid cyclist really from a recreational standpoint. So, you know, from commuting uh, leading up to, you know, my accident in 2019, I was routinely commuting uh, 28 miles round trip each day by bike, uh, would spend most of my weekends um, out playing on a bicycle in one way or another. Um, and, you know, it's, I have been really fortunate that cycling is one of uh, the most adaptive sports we have access to. So, you know, my, my cycling history, if you will, has shifted a bit. It looks a little different now. 
Um, and, you know, but I've been really privileged to be able to incorporate it into my life uh, just in a slightly different way. Yeah, um, that sounds um, kind of a, a like a it was a process um, to learn how to ride an adaptive bike. Um, can you talk more about your bicycle? Maybe destru- describe um, adaptive. What is adaptive cycling um, for those who may not know? Um, and um, maybe talk about hand cranks. Um, I've known someone who was an LCI league cycling instructor who used um, an adaptive bike and was pretty, she and her husband both were, um, used adaptive bicycles to ride in um, South Georgia. So I'd love to hear about um, how you started adaptive riding, um, what that process was like, and also just to describe your bicycle. Sure. So, uh, again, I, you know, we, we really as a community benefit from that cycling is incredibly adaptable. So, I mean, you could even consider a, tan- a traditional tandem bicycle to be an adaptive tool, right? So someone who has uh, vision impairment can partake in cycling with the aid of uh, a, a person who has, uh, you know, access to, to their vision who can steer from the front, Um but we also have cycles that, you know, allow people to be recumbent. I would consider that an adaptive uh, cycle. We have hand cycles. So you asked me about my cycle. I use a hand cycle, which is essentially a low, um, a low base tricycle where um, all of the same parts. So, you know, I've got, you know, classic Shimano DI2 all over my hand cycle. But rather than having crank arms for your legs, I, uh, I have crank arms for my arms. So things are, in some cases, flipped upside down or kind of put in a unique spot. But all the mechanics are really similar. I'm just using a different part of my body to power it. Um, and I think it's also important to mention, you know, the how e-assist technology has really advanced cycling for so many people, uh, whether you're using a traditional two-wheeled cycle or something more adaptive like a tricycle. It's really opened things up for um, for people to access the sport Um and to, you know, have, have the aid if they maybe can't power a cycle fully with their own, um, with their own human power. So I have personally have two uh, adaptive cycles. I have one that is, I would call sort of my, like my road cycle. Um, it's pretty aerodynamic. I lay almost all the way flat, seat first. It has one wheel in the front, two on the back. Um, and then I also have an adaptive mountain bike. Um, which is similar, one wheel in the front, two in the back, um, with 27-inch uh, wheels. It has um, shocks on the back um, and uh, obviously, like, some different, uh, you know, more traditional mountain, bike, uh, mountain biking components. And I also I have an e-assist on that, uh, which allows me to more or less keep up with um, able-bodied mountain bikers out on trail, uh, which is really quite a joy. Okay, that sounds great. Thanks for um, describing your vehicle. Um, so you are a, a public health professional, and you've done a lot of research and um, and been a part of two, you know, different teams. And I'm wondering if you can talk about um, the role of public health in cycling, and also in making more um, accessibility to adaptive sports. Um, in general, as you talked about, like from vision impairment, et cetera, um, can you give more insight into that? Yeah, I mean, so how cycling fits into public health, I would probably bucket and bucket it in two different ways. So you have a, a general wellness perspective, and you can think about that um, as from the perspective of individual health. So, sort of, I, I think it's no stretch of imagination to understand that. You know, physical wellness and fitness um, obviously improve individual health outcomes, mental health uh, and wellness, et cetera. So, you know, I think it, uh, cycling 100% fits into the bigger public health picture from that more traditional perspective. But I think it's also an opportunity to think about how cycling um, is really a tool uh, for climate change, right? So when we think about our goals working towards 2050 and net 
uh, net zero emissions and um, carbon neutrality, you know, cycling being a, a zero emissions way to get from one place to the other, you know, there's, there's huge benefits to promoting cycling as a means of transportation when we start to think about the planet's health. And then you can map that back to individual health, right? So when we think about, you know, the, the warming planet and what that means for food insecurity or heat waves um, or migration and instability from that perspective. You know, I think it's, it's one little piece, but it's an important one to acknowledge. Yes, 100% agree with you around um, by, by being on a bike, um, whatever, 203 wheels, um, tandem, um, that it's necessary for where the, the heating of the planet, decreasing that, and or um, improving personal health, mental health, um, building community, getting to know who's in, you know, who's where, and, and um, even navigating. I mean, a part of that, too, is creating um, either transportation routes that are dedicated specifically to this type of movement, or there has to be some changes within policy. Um, do you have any recommendations um, coming out of your work and your perspective, um, be it around innovation um, or, you know, just shift in how we are moving things, people and goods throughout our communities? Yeah, you know, this is, uh, it's a, I think, a perennial problem when we're thinking about health behavior adoption, right? You're always going to have early adopters, people who are diehard, regardless of the infrastructural or financial or cultural barriers to doing something, right? So regardless of the weather or, you know, what sort of a road you need to navigate down, there's going to be people who are going to use bicycles to get from one spot to another. But I, I think we have to acknowledge that for the, the average person, um, they're going to, you know, they're not going to be an early adopter, and therefore it's really a conversation about infrastructure. Do we have safe and dedicated bike lanes, like as you were talking about? Um, do we need to consider incentives, right? So you mentioned policy. Are there ways to incentivize people from, you know, not picking up their car keys in the morning and instead getting on a bicycle or choosing an alternative mode of transportation? Um, you know, you mentioned innovation. I think it's really important that we think creatively you know, we're in a we're in an ecosystem right now, though, with unprecedented um, funding available and investment in, in infrastructure. And I think it's really an opportunity for cities to be thinking about how to really be forward leaning in their physical infrastructure and, and how to make it easy for people to choose the bike. Yes. Um Intentance is also, I like um, that suggestion. Um, you mentioned e-bikes earlier, and I know that that is a mechanism that, at least locally and probably in other municipalities, are making that, um, I guess, an insurance waiver or some sort of incentive to purchase um, e-bikes. Um, and then we kind of jumped way into a discussion around around um, making a that, well, um, alternative modes of transportation, but I want to kind of circle back to see how you got into, um, into your study, into studying infectious diseases, um, as you have you know, gotten to a very, maybe it's a visible position within the White House to be able to explore this um, within, you know, various cabinets around science and technology. Um, could you talk about um, your, your education and how and why did you choose this um, to be part of this fellowship opportunity, the White House? Yeah, you know, so I, um, I did my undergrad at Oregon State. Are you still there? Hello?
Hello, I'm still Hello. here. Okay, I'm sorry. I um I I had a technical difficulty just now, so I kind of I missed your response. Um, but we'll just continue. Um, if you, um, I guess, my next question would be about increasing ridership. Um, is there any recommendations around increasing a ridership that you could offer? Sure. Um, I actually didn't answer the question. I heard a, a kind of a hang-up tone, so I'm happy to take a moment um, yeah. and answer your first question, and then we can talk a little bit about ridership. Um, okay. but, you know, I was in the midst of mentioning I, I did my undergraduate degree at Oregon State, and I actually started off studying archaeology and geology, was much more interested in earth science, um, but as an elective, I took a class on HIV and AIDS, um, and it just really opened my eyes to human suffering in the modern day and age. And I, I sort of had this reckoning with myself about, you know, do I really want to be studying the earth as it was or humans as they were millions of years ago when there's so much to do here now and today. Um, so I, I had just really one of those classic whys in my own road uh, where, it, you know, that was kind of the, the beginning of my shift towards public health and got really interested in global health and um, infectious disease in particular, um, which, you know, we often frame as diseases of poverty, right? So when we're in the context of the U.S., we often don't think about things like malaria or tuberculosis or dengue fever, but these are realities that impact people around the world. And, you know, due to all of the other social determinants of health, like they don't have the toolkits necessary to protect themselves. And there's, there's a lot of suffering still as a result. So, I mean, that's, that's really high level kind of what got me down this path. Um, you know, in terms of why I sought out the fellowship, it was, you know, I mean, that's kind of a longer story. But for me, you know, back in 2021, when I first learned about the fellowship and chose to apply, um, it was uh, my own commitment to myself to try to maximize the impact that I could have during the years that I had. Um, you also asked about ridership. You know, I would just bring us back to our earlier discussion around infrastructure. You know, I think there's always going to, like I said, there's always going to be early adopters, people who will uh, brave the wildest of paths uh, to be a cyclist, to choose alternative transportation, um, to partake in physical activity. But for most people, we have to make it really easy for them, and we have to make it the obvious choice. So I would go first and foremost back to infrastructure, uh, that we need dedicated pathways. We need um, to make it just as easy to get from place A to place B on your bicycle um, or to go out and exercise on your bicycle in a safe and enjoyable space as it is to not. Um, and I think, you know, from a transportation and a climate change perspective, you know, I, I think incentives will likely play a role in that. Um, and, you know, it's a really a real opportunity for city planners to work together with public health professionals um, to, to think about uh, policies and programs that, you know, can promote it from a number of different perspectives. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, and, I, and I guess I also want to add in the caveat of people who are differently able. Um, yes, I think infrastructure would play a role in that. But it seems like there probably is a piece around, um, there might be a piece and a need for um, innovation and adding in more things like some sensors, um, like when you cross in the street, there's like the chirping. Um, there might need to be more things like that to make it possible for people to ride, um, you know, unaided by another human, et cetera. Um, and I guess, I mean, I left that caveat off the question, but that was really what was in, in my mind. Um, but if you'd like to speak to that or we can um, continue on. Yeah, I mean, well, first and foremost, uh, this is my own personal preference, but I, I strongly prefer the term disabled for a number of reasons rather than differently abled. Um, but, you know, I, I think that this is, this all comes back to universal design. And again, when we think about uh, investment in infrastructure, uh, it is our opportunity, and in my mind, it is our mandate to be thinking about how we build with all people in mind so that all people can partake. Now, you have 
you know, I think you're kind of broaching both a technologic innovation, you know, conversation as well as an infrastructural in- innovation. And, and there's, you know, there's, there's um, pathways to both, right? So, I mean, there are technologies and equipment and things that allow people to partake um, on an even playing field, but there's also, there's also infrastructure, whether that's curb cuts or you mentioned, you know, crosswalk buttons with um, auditory signal um, or, you know, just basic sidewalks that are uh, meet the ADA standards. Like there's, you know, there's a lot of different ways we could take this, but at the end of the day, you know, my bottom line statement and recommendation and advocacy is that we, when we are thinking about whether we are um, rebuilding, reinvigorating, repairing, that we, we put universal design really as like our number one priority um, and engaging architects, city planners, as well as community stakeholders and members from these co- different communities uh, in that decision and planning process so that we are, you know, building really from the ground up things that all people can engage with and benefit from and enjoy. Yes, I totally agree with that. Inclusion from the beginning, it makes a complete difference. Um, you have said, and just reading a quote, when you acquire a disability, it can take you from being a person with relative privilege to a member of an underrepresented community in an instant, um, and also spoke of your growing sense of responsibility. Can you talk more about what that means to have this growing sense of responsibility? Um, I don't know if that's professionally or um, as an advocate, um, but could you describe what that means for you? Yeah, you know, when you've had a near-death experience, you know, people will describe it a couple different ways. Some people use the term sort of peeking behind the veil, right? And the way that I would frame it is that, you know, I have had a brush with um, my mora- my mortality, right? I um I, if you ask, like, how have I changed, I would say one is I probably have a little bit thicker skin now than I did before, Um, a better sense of clarity about what's important and what's not. Um, But I also would say I have a a greater sense of urgency for doing something with the years that we have, right? And we just don't, it's so cliche, but it's so true. We just don't know where our life is going to go. Um, And you know, I've always worked in public health, global health, uh, working for underserved populations. Um, but I, as you mentioned, I now find myself a member of a very chronically underserved population. That said, I still have a voice. I still have education. I still have a great degree of privilege that I carry through my life on a day-to-day basis. And so I would just say it's given me a greater sense of responsibility to use any platform that I have to speak for people who don't have that platform. Um, and I, I've just gained more appreciation for, but that in and of itself is a privilege and it's all about what we do with it. Yes, to making our lives count um, for more than just ourselves. Um, a part of your work has been, um, you know, advocacy definitely um, and, and addressing the inequitable access to COVID-19 vaccine while um, in Massachusetts, you you managed a Massachusetts statewide program. Um, In in thinking about there will always be another pandemic. I don't know if wildfires could be considered that, but um, how do we um, prepare and how can we make sure that access to health services are more equitable? Well, I would say a couple of things. One, you know, coming from a global health background, uh, when when COVID uh, started, it was uh, really humbling that so many of the toolkits we deployed in the global health setting about reaching hard-to-reach populations came in pretty darn handy here in the U.S. Um, and I say that because a lot of those toolkits are around reaching hard-to-reach populations and getting creative, right? So innovating how we deploy healthcare and services, how we engage people, and how we decentralize care, bring it to the patient uh, in whatever way that means. Um, so, you know, I would, I would say that's one part of it, but the other part of it is that 
we need to diversify our healthcare workforce, right? So I have worked um, for most of my career, either in the context of global health or, you know, in the context of a safety net hospital. And when our patient um, advocates and when our healthcare providers look like, represent, and come from the, the patient populations that we're working to engage, we get better outcomes, right? Because you have, you're already three steps ahead from that foundation of trust that's so imperative uh, when we think about healthcare delivery and engagement. Um, the other thing is, you know, just all of your basic principles around community engagement. So making sure, you know, you mentioned earlier um, about making sure that people are included in the conversation. And I think we have to bring this concept of inclusion to healthcare as well. Um, so, yeah, you know, those are my two off the cuff uh, answers to that. Um, but I'm happy to expand more if you're interested. I mean, I, I'm definitely interested because um, thinking that just thinking of public health, it touches pretty much everything. Um, everything in our in our life just like planning does and i'm wondering if you have had opportunities in your life to work with planners um or you know design programs city designs community design programs um be it for infrastructure or for any and maybe it was a part of that work that you did in um in that managing the statewide program in massachusetts but if you could talk a little bit more about um, maybe work with the, in, within those areas, intersectional yeah. work that you might, yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, um, let me think. I mean, from a different, couple different perspectives, um, one um, is work that I have done uh, around really in mountain biking and advocacy for access to adaptive mountain bikes. Um, you know, I've had some really fantastic interactions with the Northwest, Northwest Trails Alliance um, in the Portland area, um, rethinking how even small changes to our trails infrastructure can make a huge difference and have a huge impact on um, access to adaptive cycles. Um, I have served on a number of different committees related to either health equity um, or accessibility um, and I think this just brings us back to, you know, at the planning phase, you have to create a forum that is one, safe, but two, engages the end user. Um, and when I say end user, I mean in all of the diversity and different forms that that could take. Um, and not just thinking about the status quo, really making sure that you as the, whether you're the designer or the planner or the manager are being proactive, um, to create that space and to welcome and invite people in. We often in public health talk about uh, champions, right? So who are those people who are from the community, have trust in the community, who can go back and share the message or engage or, you know, communicate that this is an opportunity to lend your voice and to encourage people to lend their voice. You know, there's a lot of different, again, like tools in our toolkit that we use in public health. And you're so right, like public health, is so many things, right? Public health is, is our safety. It is our water quality. It's our infrastructure. It's our access to good foods. Um, and I think when we, again, this goes back to diversifying our workforce, whether that's the healthcare workforce or the public health workforce, when you bring people from our traditionally underrepresented and underserved communities into the, the decision-making or to the decision-making tables, like we can have a really big impact um, in making sure that everyone's voice is represented. Um, yep, you've talked about how um, yes, you're you're speaking from your point of view and your perspective and your experience, but um, I could not speak to your experience. Even coming down to what is the best way to describe um, describe you, you know, differently abled versus disabled, like. Um, so I think that is case in point that if we in society don't allow people to speak to their own experiences, we're really going to miss um, some critical opportunities to create positive change. Um, so thanks for bringing that to the forefront um, and just thinking about who are we centering, you know, who's been really harmed here and making space 
Um, and it's not just making space, but making the space safe and um, open and welcoming um, and just doing that consistently. So also thank you for your advocacy as well. And with the last few minutes that are left here, I'm wondering if you could say, tell us what's next from you because fellowship year will end and, you know, you got a, a whole life ahead of you. What are you, what are you wanting to get into you? How do you see yourself using your platform um, more? Um, yeah, what's next? Yeah, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, yes, my, my fellowship ends at the end of August, uh, so I am having to figure this out now, but um, you know, I I try to think about um, everything that I do with intentionality and sort of through, you know, some degree of rubric, right? So um, at the end of the day, like, I'm making my next decision based on will I, through that role or through that position, be able to advance health and outcomes for those who, uh, you know, typically don't have a seat at the table, if that's the case, then that's the direction I want to go. You know, I also, you know, I've, I've spoken in other forums about being an advocate um, and how it's something that I'm growing into, right? So I never, I didn't wake up one day and go, I want to be a disability advocate. I, what happened is I woke up day after day after day and realized that, you know, I might have access to um, platforms or bully pulpits that others don't. Um, I might have access to a voice that others don't. And there's a lot of really important work that needs to be done. So I would say, you know, what, what's next for me? It's continuing, continuing to build that muscle, gain comfort in that space, and figure out what are other forums that, you know, I can make sure that we're talking about people with disabilities in where we haven't been in the past or that we're not doing it in a way that's really um, advancing um, outcomes and experience for people. Um, so, you know, part of that, I think, is through sports, right? So where do we start with this conversation? It was adaptive cycling. You know, there is uh, this wonderful blossoming community around the country around adaptive mountain biking, and our trails infrastructure is behind. And, you know, there's, there's so much work to be done, and I, I think generally it's a community that is so excited to have all people take part. Um, but there's, there's work to be done around making sure that you know, we are, again, when we're thinking about design and we're thinking about um, outdoor recreation, that we're thinking about how to create space that all people can partake in. Um, and then I think there's a lot of work to be done in the workplace, too. So how do we create um, environments where um, all people can bring their full selves and can partake in our economy and can partake in our workforce and can uh, do what they love, whatever that looks like? Um, so that's a very abstract answer to your very big question. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I, I just hope that um, I'm able each day to go, well, I, I did a little bit of something to try to help the lives of others and that I am continuing to enjoy along the way on life's journey. Yeah, well, thank you for your diligent work, um, Elizabeth, and good luck to you. I hope that you find your way to some working groups as well. NACTO and FWA, they have working groups, so you might be a very good voice to have on one of their committees. Not making any suggestions, but kind of. Um, <laughs> thanks for joining us today. And, folks, keep your eye on Elizabeth Reagan. Take care, Elizabeth. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. You are listening to the KBO Bike Show. We, Nedra Deadweiler. <laughs> Just spoke with Elizabeth Reagan, White House Fellow, Advocate for Health. Putin le dice a los mercenarios de Wagner que se unan al ejército ruso o se enfrenten al exilio en Bielorrusia. Solinsky visita tropas de primera línea. La administración Biden anuncia nuevas armas para Ucrania. La UNICEF advierte que 100.000 niños refugiados sudaneses en Chad se enfrentan a nuevos peligros. Colonos israelíes asaltan aldea palestina en Cisjordania, incendian casas y disparan armas. La Corte Suprema ordena a Luisiana redibujar el mapa del conflicto.